Well, hi once again, listeners. This is Mark Griffin, Director of Customer Solutions here at Constructs. We are a team of software engineering experts led by legendary author Steve McConnell. Here we believe every software team can be more successful at delivering higher levels of business value. In each episode, we talk to one of our consultants, exploring one of our different types of engagements. We describe the issues those engagements were designed to address and how we solve them. And in some episodes, like this one here, we're going to discuss issues or techniques that are more transcendent or or common to uh, or helpful in all of those engagements. So we are actually very proud to be teeing up this episode as our inaugural episode of 2021, our season two Thank you all for participating and supporting us by listening and providing input to things you'd like to hear about. Today, uh, we are joined again uh, by Construct Senior Fellow Steve Taki from beautiful downtown Redmond, Washington, up on Education Hill. How are things, Steve? Always good to talk with you, Mark. Thanks for asking. Uh, Not too bad here. Well, since my wings got clipped by COVID, I've been doing online training and consulting sessions as well as modernizing and extending uh, all my presentation materials. We should be ready with uh, new content based on my latest book in just a few weeks. Awesome. Well, that's a good plug. I'll I'll make another (laughs) reference to it later downstream, hopefully. I'll take it. Absolutely. So um, we, we thought we'd do something fun. Uh, to start our second season and and use a, a somewhat familiar vehicle to help new listeners and some of our old friends understand Constructs' software engineering expertise and perspective. And so, how we're going to do that? One of the things I thought about doing here was to use the uh, use beer as the vehicle. And you might be thinking, well, how you're going to do that? You have my attention. Let's figure out how to manage this discussion. So, to begin with, it should be noted that both Steve and I are home brewers. Um, in fact, some of you have probably ventured to Constructs headquarters for a public training session sometime in the last 14 years or so, and you probably had a pint or three of, of the beers that we have created. Steve has been brewing for more than 25 years, and he taught me how to brew 14 years ago. Um, both of us uh, honestly still have our own original livers, um, but uh, not our original brain cells. Uh, we've lost some of the latter, um, but as the uh, Irish joke goes, only the weak ones. 25 years, Steve. That's a long time to be brewing. Yeah, brewing was something I wanted to do all the way back in the 1980s. Um, I developed a very first version of Model Base Requirements and Design Seminar in about 1988, 1989. And the case study we used was to actually automate a beer brewery. So I'd read several book books on brewing, uh, but couldn't understand the actual process just from the descriptions in the book. I mean, reading about it was one thing, but seeing it actually happen was an entirely different thing for me. So starting in about 1994, I was teaching after hours in the Seattle University Master's of Software Engineering program, and one of my students was an award-winning home brewer, and it even opened up one of the earliest microbrew pubs here in Seattle. He showed me how to homebrew in about 1995, and I've been brewing great beers ever since. So thanks, Jamie. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in that brewery, I think the one you're you're referencing, I think the the equipment from that brewery is actually now in West Seattle, being used uh, in another brewery. So it continues on. So it's kind of a nice thing. I mean, stainless steel never goes bad, right? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it was a it was a nice setup. And, and, and you know, I'm thinking back to the time when you started brewing beer in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, not a whole lot of internet stuff out there. Maybe some Usenet, Rec. Brewing, or something. I don't know one of those things. But you know, and and really the proliferation of homebrew stores for ingredients and good ingredients for that matter were it 
pretty thin, right? So I, I applaud you for what you did. Yeah, well, I wasn't one of the trailblazers. At least I had Larry's uh, home brewing supply nearby, and yeah. that's uh, was a landmark. Yeah, uh, at the time, absolutely, absolutely. So you know, from on my side, uh, from my my beer journey, if you if you will, um, I enrolled uh, a number of years ago. I mean, not too far, not too long after you started to to teach me how to brew beer. I got into a program through the American Homebrewers Association called the Beer Judge Certification Program, or BJCP, if as you will, and it culminated the the the, the um, classes that I took culminated in an exam, and, and the exam was a written uh, exam and a tasting exam, and it, that, that was a brutal exam. I mean, I have a master's degree in double E, and I took a lot of hard classes, and I have to say, some of those exam classes my hand hurt and when i was done with those with those uh, classes and, and the exams and you know i didn't really score very high so my rank is not very high in there but it really set the tone for me being able to understand how to brew good beer and how to be critical of my own beers and and so i think you and i as brewers can brew almost anything these days i think we're we're both really pretty good at at what we do so i i think the, <laughs> my journey and your journey took different paths but we got to the same point yeah, I'm remembering uh, a Gretzer that you had produced. Yeah, yeah, the so-called ham ham sandwich in a glass. I, yeah. I, I made it once. I'm not sure I'd make it again, but it would. It actually worked exactly the way it was supposed to. So it came you know, out how it was. Yeah, exactly. So you know, this is what um, uh, led me to think about beer pairing and software development. I, I started to think about how I used to pair beer with food and I, I and I would do some charity events where I, I I would make the beer and I would you know you and I share another common um, enjoyment and, and and we love to cook and so I used to make these dishes that would pair the food and the beer and sometimes the beer was part of the of, of a sauce that I make or something like that so you know I was going down this white rabbit hole kind of so to speak thinking about um, how would I pair certain software development activities to beers as a fun way to illustrate uh, to software professionals, how those things connected. And, and it was a good way to feed your head. So, you know, I have to also say, say that I just kind of completed the dry January. So it, to, uh, full disclosure, I was completely sober when I had that thought about doing this. So <laughs> it is what it is, right? So right. for purposes of, of sort of guiding the whole conversation and, and, and sort of a visual here, let's talk about the notion of activities in developing software. So things like requirements, design, construction, testing, deployment, maintenance. I think we want to deliberately use the word activity and not phase here because I think phase implies waterfall or some plan-based SDLC where the, these activities need to happen regardless of SDLC, right? So even, even though there clearly isn't a requirements phase or a design phase in an agile project, requirements and design work are still being done they're just being done on a user story by user story basis. And so we're going to toss in some intermediate levels of discussion in terms of, of some of the areas I think we ought to talk about as well as those activities. But for this session, let's roll through those basic activities as the premise. Makes sense? Yeah, works for me. So um, before we actually dive into the into the requirements and start working our way across that, that listing, um, let's begin with some general principles um, that are present in most of our interactions with our clients. And, and it's something that we call the 10X software engineering principles. Um, and that name 10X, for those who are not familiar with it, refers to at least an order of magnitude difference in software team performance between the best teams we've seen and the worst. 
And so, Steve, why don't you describe these principles a little and why they're such an important framing message for so many of our clients? Yeah, sure. Uh, Simply, there are some critical underlying dynamics on software projects, things like understanding the inherent uncertainty and the defect cost increase effect and things like that. Most teams don't recognize these dynamics and end up fighting them all the way through the projects. The few teams that do recognize them can deal with them uh, effectively. And so there are eight basic principles of 10x that transcend all of the different lifecycle models. These apply on all projects in some way or another. So the first of them is avoid minus X productivity. There are things that are very common on projects that are just productivity killers, and we need to recognize them and and avoid them. The next one is to be setting direction, getting everybody to pull together. It's quite common that when in the absence of getting explicit goals, people will just make up goals. And so one person will think, oh, I think time to market is really the critical thing here. And uh, the other person thinks that this is uh, doing it the right way or making it fully functional is is a, the right thing to be doing. And so what each of them are doing to optimize to their local uh, uh, maxima ends up just canceling the other one out. And it just ends up with a lot of brownie in motion uh, when you're done with it. So it's really important to get everybody uh, moving in the same direction, uh, focused on the same goal. Indeed. Uh, yeah. Next up, attack uncertainty. Uh, the idea here is to recognize that inherent uncertainty, communicate that inherent uncertainty, and find ways to reduce uh, that uncertainty, which are uh, – there are ways that we can do that. Uh, next up, tailor the solution to the problem. I mean, one size does not fit all, very simply. There's just too much variation from one project to the next. Uh, the the number of people that are on the project team, I mean, it's one or two on the one hand, or I've been on projects with as many as 800 developers when you added up all of the uh, developers and the business analysts and the testers and the uh, and the managers. Uh, we had thirteen hundred people on one project. Wow. Now, clearly, you're not going to be running that project the same way that you're running a, a two or three person project. And so, matching the uh, matching the approach that you're using to the particulars of your project is hugely important. Uh, seeking ground truth, the Swiss Army is rumored to have said that when the map doesn't agree with the terrain, believe the terrain. And the point here is that we tend not to be paying attention to what the project is really telling us. We uh, you know, cling to our vision of the thing and not what it really is. Next up is make decisions uh, based on data. Uh, I facetiously, facetiously refer to something I call uh, RDD resume-driven development. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, hey, this looks really good on my resume. We're going to do it on the project. Uh, no, wrong answer. We do things because they make good sense, and in particular because they make good business sense. Uh, minimize unintentional rework. We've actually measured in uh, a number of organizations that in addition to requirements work and design work and construction work and all those activities that you mentioned, there's rework where we're fixing things that were broken 
even though the person who did the work said the work was done, it turned out later that the work was not actually done and we had to go back and fix it. And we've actually measured an average of 61% rework in typical organizations. And so at 61% rework, that means when you add the requirements and the design and the construction and testing and all of those activities, that they can't be any more than uh, 39%. So we have to recognize that the single largest driver of cost and schedule on a typical project is rework, and it's more than all of the other cost and schedule drivers put together. And so if you care about productivity, there's your number one target of opportunity. And yeah, it's amazing, we, isn't it? Wow. Yeah, and we, we just basically ignore it. Uh, grow capability. Uh, multiple credible uh, studies have shown that individual capabilities are a massive driver of overall team productivity. It's the sharpening your saw analogy. And these principles are all 100% consistent with my more than 40 years of experience on software projects. We see, and the industry data supports, that at least a factor of 10 variation in productivity between organizations that are even building competing products. So uh, because they're essentially building different versions of the same thing, it's not the thing that's being built that's the driver of the productivity difference. Right. It's how it's being built. And the common pattern is the more of these principles that are being followed on a project, the higher the productivity and the higher the project success rates. Now, it's hard to get definitive data, but by one report, the software development and maintenance budget in 2019 in the U.S. alone was about $340 billion. Wow. My calculations have shown that the total software functionality that got delivered in 2019 should have actually cost closer to $83 billion to, to deliver. So that's a little bit more than 24% of what was actually spent. In other words, about $257 billion was wasted because these principles weren't being followed. In a study recently published just a few weeks ago by the Consortium for Information and Software Quality comes to very similar conclusions. We've simply got to start paying more serious attention to this kind of stuff. Those kind of numbers are like government level inefficiency numbers people that's not the private sector but this is the private sector we're talking about that has this you know the, the basically a 24 percent efficiency rating that's awful yeah i mean in the 1950s if i'm remembering the details of the story there was a senator from illinois by the name of everett dirksen and uh and this is in 1950s dollars he said quote a few billion here a few billion there and pretty soon you're starting to talk real money and today's parlance would be trillion Right? Yeah, so, exactly. So. Yeah. Well, those are great thoughts that, uh, on on the 10x ideas. I think that, they, that really puts a a pretty good uh, framing around what we want to talk about later on in the, in this podcast. So this is how I'm envisioning this is going to work. And here's here's the first example I'll give you uh, and my thoughts on on a beer that would pair really well with these principles. My thinking at these these principles are really ideas that shouldn't anger anybody. Right, they're they're not pretentious. They're not something everybody should should uh, shouldn't agree on. Everybody should say, "Yep, I recognize that list. All those things sound like good things." And so I think immediately of of beers that are easily accepted in the in the bigger marketplace. Right, light lagers, like for example, the Coors Light or a Bud Light. I mean, nobody can argue that people will drink them. Um, that they're recognizable as part of any 
bar scene you go into, right? You're always going to have a tap handle that has a Coors Light or Bud Light or Miller Light or something on tap that way. You can't go into much detail about the depth of flavor or the aroma or the mouthfeel because there simply isn't any really with that, right? They're pretty minimal. Right. So, you know, much the same as the fact that you're not going to learn semantic modeling and the details of Scrum from the learning content in 10X. you you can't wax poetically about the inherent subtlety of a, of a light lager, right? They're, they're just a valuable part of the beer culture, period. And so are these 10x principles in, in our work with clients. You know, all organizations can improve by embracing these principles, right? What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm going to agree. I mean, you might get some sneers at how basic this style is from the more sophisticated crowd who want to go well beyond these basics. But these are a really solid foundation to be starting from. All right. We could play our Statler and Waldorf and sit up on the balcony and yell at Bud. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's it is what it is, right? So, Right, exactly. So, you know, now that we've framed this process, let's dive into the activities and, and see what other things we can come up with. I mean, the first subject that we think we're going to talk about in the activities list here, I think, is near and dear to your heart, Steve, and that's requirements. So, why don't we hit the the crucial facts and realities related to this activity and, and give us give us some starting point for there? Yeah, so I've surveyed thousands of people from hundreds of different projects over more than 20 years, asking about the challenges that they face in developing and maintaining software. The consistent number one problem, and that's 46% of the time it shows up number one, uh, continues to be vague, ambiguous, and incomplete requirements. And so this one is a biggie. So the big picture of the requirement space is, on the one hand, requirements development, which is all about reaching an agreement about what the software uh, team is supposed to build. And underneath that, the top topics are elicitation, drawing out requirements, surfacing candidate requirements, analysis, understanding the meaning and the implications of each individual requirement statement together with in context in the, you know, in the larger context with all the other uh, requirements. Specification is writing it down so we remember it, writing it down so it can be communicated, and then validation, making sure that we have all the requirements, making sure that we have only requirements, and making sure that these requirements are well stated. So that's, again, development. That's reaching the agreement on the one hand. On the other hand, requirements management is maintaining that agreement over time. Uh, the three top level things there are scrubbing. What is the smallest set of simply stated requirements that still satisfies the stakeholder needs? The idea is the smallest set of simply stated requirements lead to the smallest, simplest design, which lead to the least amount of code to be written that, again, still solves the, uh, the stakeholders' problems, but gets it to them as quickly as possible. Okay. Second up is the idea of scope matching. At one former employer, we had a joke of software projects were a lot like trying to cram 10-pound pile of rocks into a five-pound bag. Now, it wasn't really rocks, but you get the idea. I mean, everybody has to agree that 10 pounds of rocks don't fit into five-pound bags. You either need to get a bigger bag, or you need to get a smaller pile of rocks, or you need to negotiate some trade-off of, okay, here's a seven-and-a-half-pound bag and a seven-and-a-half-pound pile of rocks. That's fine, but you know, 10 pounds don't fit into five-pound bags, end of story. And then controlling change. I mean, the universe changes whether we like it or not. And that has to be reflected in changes to the agreement. And so uh, the whole, again, idea of change control. And so 
what we're doing here is help teams level set on what requirements are and what good requirements are and what different processes can be used to get requirements, how to elicit requirements, who defines them, how to analyze them, how to specify them, how to validate them, and how to maintain them over time. Perfect. So, you know, I'm, you, as you're talking through those things, I, I'm thinking about what kind of beer um, makes sense for something like this. And, you know, my 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 thoughts ideally, I think, turn to the fact that almost every software person that I know struggles with requirements at some point in their in their career. And and teams are often bitter when they find out they've missed or misinterpreted requirements. When they look at look back at a project, they they might dig into the root causes of project failure and often more bitter than things that things, for example, weren't disclosed by stakeholders or, or that they were completely missed and misinterpreted by the team. For So for that reason, I'm thinking of, of something super bitter, and that would be a double IPA pairing here. Um, double IPAs are harder to manage in a drinking session. They're characterized by a strong hop bitterness. Uh, some would say really overwhelming, um, maybe like some outspoken stakeholders in a product organization. I don't know. To me, this has to be bitter. That just seems to make sense to me. What do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, way of thinking about it. I would go in a different direction. Uh, instead of pairing with one specific style, I would pair with a broader category of the Belgian styles. There's more than 15 amazingly different Belgian styles, ranging from saisons to whip beers to quadruples to lambics. Many people are afraid to even try Belgians because they are so different than what they're used to. But just like these Belgian styles, there's guaranteed to be something in better requirements that you'll value for the rest of your career if you're just willing to try it. Yeah, that's good. I'll take that. That's an interesting, you know, that's another thought on it. Uh, I mean, Belgians are so, they're so broad and they're so deep. Um, there's lots of ways to think about how you could structure those. So that makes sense. Those are totally good thoughts. You know, we can certainly get more niche when we are addressing, you know, for example, organizations that have adopted an Agile SDLC. So I'm, I'm talking about shifting focus to the Agile requirements landscape here, and I'm thinking about beers like stories that are lighter weight, easy to consume, but they're really subtle, and, and, and they require a lot of skill in, in execution and, and, and in brewing, brewing skills. And so you things like agile planning and brewing the kind of beer that would emulate those practices. So I'm thinking of a German Kolsch or a Hefeweizen, maybe even a Belgian wit beer. You know, if they're done right, they're very consumable, like agile requirements or stories that are well-written. Um, and, and so what do you think of that, Steve? It's just as a niche. Yeah, I can see that. I don't have anything to really add to that here. Okay. Makes sense. Um, so another requirements topic that we should talk about, and I wish, um, you know, I'm trying to think of a guy that might might have write a book about software engineering, maybe like how to engineer software. Maybe maybe he lives not too far away. Maybe he's actually on the show right now. Oh, could that be? <laughs> Who could that be? So let's talk about something that you wrote a lot about in your most recent book, and that's the idea of model-based requirements. Tell us a little bit about that. What does that mean? A lot of big words, but I think you have a good way of, of kind of parsing those into people in the way people can understand it. Yeah, model-based requirements is a very deep dive into just one specific way of specifying the requirements using a specialized dialect of UML, the Unified Modeling Language. It's literally a software functional requirements blueprinting language that's intentionally designed to eliminate vagueness and ambiguity, as well as reduce incompleteness down to a bare minimum. Though That number one problem that we were talking about, vague, ambiguous, uh, incomplete requirements, the, the specific goal 
in this approach is to reduce those down to a bare minimum, if not eliminate them altogether. You still need to do everything we already talked about, good elicitation, good validation, and good requirements management. We're just looking at a major change in how the functional requirements themselves are written down and communicated. Makes sense. Makes sense. You know, a, a, an engineered formality associated with, I guess. And, you know, when you had me thinking here about, about formal specification using this, uh, this dialect of UML, this conciseness, reproducibility, a blueprint language, all these notions lead me to think about the discipline of the Germans. You know, the, the, the Germans, I remember having this conversation with a person at a homebrew conference uh, one time about, about having to do, having to deal with, um, yeast cultures and the precision associated with measuring and streaking and doing all these things about yeast. And the guy put his hands up and says, ah, you don't need me. You need German. Right. So this, this <laughs> idea, this, this, this proficiency in technical things, this very, you know, very disciplined environment. Right. So using words like eliminate ambiguity, drive mistakes out, things like that. So I think about a German pills, right. When you make a Pilsner, there's no place to hide a fault in that beer. I mean, early homebrewers, they might make a stout and you can kind of screw up a scat a little bit, but it's the, the, the depth of it and the complexity of the flavors can hide things. And a lot of people drink them and go, yeah, this is okay, right? But if, if you mess a Pilsner up, man, there's no place to hide. You you will notice that. And and I think we've all had Pilsners in, in you know, even reasonable brew pubs that we frequent on a, on, on a regular occasion, you'll find a Pilsner that doesn't quite, it's not quite there. You'll drink it anyway, but it's not quite there. So to me, the same analogy, there's no place to hide in a properly developed semantic model. It has to be there. So, you know, what do you think of that idea? Germans and Pils. Yeah, well, given that uh, genetically, ethnically, I'm three quarters German, so I mean, <laughs> they, they, there may be no accident in this. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm also going with a German style, but I would be pairing this with uh, South German Dunkelweiss or Weizenbach, and so these are really solid beers that simply don't mess around. And given that 56% of software defects or bugs in the vernacular are a direct result of missing, misinterpreted, and wrong requirements, you shouldn't be messing around with beer. You shouldn't be messing around with requirements either. Awesome. And I've had your Dunkelweiss. I really like that beer. It's a really, really nice beer. So it almost feels like we should make one of those pretty soon. So, Oh, maybe, do you think? Yes. We I'm could game. wear our masks and stand in the garage at six feet away. We'd be fine, I think. So Definitely. Um, I think I think this bridges into the design topic pretty easily, uh, and you know you're really the man here at Constructs with regards to design activities. You have a lot to say about this this topic, so why don't you share some of the practices related to design? I know there are a lot more that we can cover t today, but just briefly give, give us some highlights of things that you would think about when you talk about design practices in that and in, in, in beer in, in general. Yeah. Yeah. Design is a really broad category, but some of the things that I'd want to make sure uh, people understand is what design even is and how it actually relates to code. Uh, there just seems to be a general misunderstanding of the relationship of design to code. Um, they're a lot more disconnected in the way things are practiced than they really need to be. They need to be much more connected together. Uh, managing complexity is a huge issue. Fundamental design principles, abstraction, encapsulation, cohesion, coupling, what some people would call the solid principles, S-O-L-I-D, but an extension uh, built on top of the solid principles. Uh, the role of creativity in design, 
design paradigms at different levels, like uh, at an architectural level, the difference between model view controller versus pipes and filters, why I would use one versus another. Uh, we can talk about the design patterns in more detail uh, as another level and the real valuable role of design documentation. That's another area where the industry, I think, has completely missed the boat. Yeah, and in particular, maybe even in the agile races, you know, the the race to to being more agile, the, the notion of documentation gets a little bit convoluted in that context, and and you know, there's such a wide variance in what people perceive to be sufficient in that thing, and that's that's a topic for a whole other conversation, I'm sure. But <laughs> and, absolutely, and when I think of design, um, I, I think about being really creative. You mentioned creativity in design, so. You know, about following these solid principles that lay the groundwork for a good code set that you're going to build downstream. But I also think about about innovative approaches, more right brain stuff when I think about design. So when I think about that and try and look at the, at the beer community, I think about the Belgians when I think about design. You know, they they pretty much, you know, here's the Germans making these, making these lagers and they looked at it and said, yeah, that's kind of neat, but we have other ideas, right? So they, you know, they didn't follow what the Germans put out. They just said, you know, there's... Pilsner's German purity laws, all that kind of stuff. That's cool. But, you know, we have spices we can add to the beers. I mean, you, the Belgians, the food was influenced by by the connections that they had to the Caribbean. So you had the spice routes that brought these incredible spices to the docks in, in, in Belgium. And so you, you couldn't help but see that stuff move into their beers. So you had things like orange peel and coriander and ginger and cardamom and all these uh, cinnamon, all these spices that came from the West Indies that, that made their way to Belgium and they, they made their way into the beers. And so I'd like to think about all that creativity that mates with the design content that you talk about, the creativity. Like I think about Belgian doubles and Belgian triples and quads and, you know, for those really gnarly complex designs, the one where you probably want to drink a quad after you're finished the work. <laughs> so I mean, how does that sound? I mean, as a pairing, not as something you want to drink right now, or maybe you do want to drink right now. I don't know. No, that, maybe I am sound? drinking a little bit of Belgian right now. Yeah, I mean, the, the joke in the home brewing community is, or even in the larger brewing community, is that uh, Belgium should be considered the Disneyland of beer because there's so much <laughs> variety. Exactly. And I do agree that creativity is really important in good design. So pairing with the Belgians is understandable. But to me, uh, a better pairing would be the English IPAs. Most British beer styles have a shelf life of a couple of weeks. And the story is that the alpha acids that are in the hops act as a preservative and that the IPAs were intentionally over hopped and thus very bitter so that they could survive the month-long sea voyage from the breweries in England to the drinkers in India. And that's my point. Your design needs to be built to last in the same way that an IPA is a beer that's built to last. I love that. It's a great story. And, and I, I share that story all the time with people. And, and you know, as I, as I researched this whole idea of the India IPAs and, you know, that they used to ship the beers from, from England to, uh, to India, you know, when, when India began or when um, – the British Empire uh, became involved with India. The, they wanted the beard the same way they used to get up at the pubs when they were in England. And they found that some of the beers would spoil. So they, they started to overhop them um, because the hops were preservative. And by the time they got to India, they actually tasted fine. They actually tasted the same. And ironically, what ended up happening, what was probably more true to the story is the fact that 
that hoppier beers became more more interesting to people in England, not only in, in India. So, the notion of the uh, of these hoppier beers going to India, it's a great little urban legend. But in in reality, the, this thing called the Lupulin shift, right, where people get it's like <laughs> capsation with hot foods. You get used to something really hot. And it's not hot anymore. Same thing with hoppy beers. And and I've seen that with some of my friends who are big hopheads here in the Pacific Northwest. They'll start drinking a certain kind of IPA and they, it won't do it for them. They have to keep getting it higher and higher and higher levels of hoppiness. And so I think that's kind of what you see with the IPAs is that whole, whole notion. But I think, you know, I love the story and I share the story the same way you do. Right, right. Yeah, it may not be true. It may be urban legend, but it gets a point across. Absolutely. So, you know, you mentioned that, uh, a related subject here, and that's design patterns. Why don't you talk a little bit about design patterns while we're on the subject of design, and we'll see which beer leaps to mind for that. Sure, yeah. Uh, patterns are one of many forms of reuse. Uh, this form is independent of languages and architectures, but what's important to know about patterns is what is a pattern in the first place. What are the most widely used patterns like adapter and iterator and proxy and decorator and singleton? to know how to choose the patterns and having chosen a particular pattern, how do you actually apply it in your design and code? And one thing that I think is unique to how I see patterns is to understanding why the patterns look the way they do. It's not accidental why decorator pattern looks the way it does, that there's a, a reasoning, a soundness behind that. And if you can understand what fundamental principles are driving decorator pattern to look the way it does that you can broaden out uh, these uh, underlying principles to how you build software in general. That makes sense. I mean, I, you and I, you know, I've been here be 14 years this month uh, that I've been at constructs and, and, you know, my, my background as an, in engineering was uh, as a, as a circuit designer. And so I used to always, you know, when, when I did my silicon designs, the notion of reuse was huge, was, was front and center to a lot of the stuff that, that I ended up uh, doing. And so when I came here and we started talking about software reuse and I couldn't believe how people would throw away code, but I, but I've learned, you know, from talking to you and others here at Constructs that this idea of reuse doesn't necessarily have to be in lines of code. It can be in a, a different way. And I think that's what you're talking about specifically with design patterns, right? Yeah, and in fact, we could do a whole separate uh, podcast just on the topic of the reasons why code itself is inherently non-reusable. Of all the things that are more or less reusable, the least reusable thing is lines of code. Right, and and that's just a difference from where I came from. But I think the, you know, I I was comforted, I guess, to some extent that 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 the software engineering community does use it does have reuse somewhere in its tenets, and and so I think this is a good place to kind of say I'm glad to see that the the patterns do that. So you know, when I think about this particular um, activity, I think about beer styles that 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 really can be broad, but actually actually can be applied to many different things, much the same as patterns can be. And I think about a style called a Belgian Cezanne. Uh, and Cezannes were developed in Belgium. Um, they actually were right around the uh, France-Belgian border. And so uh, it's a beer style in French that means season. And, and, and it was typically brewed in the spring uh, for people that work the land. So it, it's, and they got it for lunch, which is awesome. 
<laughs> but it's also known as a farmhouse ale because it was mostly used in the fields a lot. And it's very highly carbonated, sometimes fruity, sometimes spicy, and a very flexible base beer style. So many farmhouses, breweries uh, in the region could make them differently, but they all kind of adhere to a loose standard that was more of a pattern of how to build this particular thing. So um, it's a flexible style you could adapt and reuse with many different beer designs. So here's the connection to the, the to the the idea of patterns. And, and it was given to the field personnel, the developers of the land, if you will. So I think it pairs well with design patterns. Uh, and the learning content we talk about in terms of, of design patterns really embraces that. So reusable, leverageable, different brewing applications. How's that sound? Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, I'd take it in a, a little bit different direction to build on that. I mean, I would pair patterns with something like a blonde ale or a red ale in the sense that they're a really good first step in branching out beyond the typical basic lagers. These are very different beer styles than lagers, to be sure, but they're not as radically different as, say, a porter or a stout. And so the design patterns are a really good first step beyond basic design practices that are most commonly used today. Uh, both red, uh, both blondes and reds in beer and design patterns in software can be your introduction to a whole universe of better beer and better ways of building software. The gateway beers. Exactly. Cool, cool. So um, – Let's go one more level into the weeds here, in the design weeds, with uh, with this idea of modeling. Since we touched already on model based requirements, let's let's talk about the complementary thing that you talk about also in your book, which is model based design. Give us some idea for for what what some of the tenets are with that. Yeah, model based design builds on model based requirements and. How do you turn a precise model of requirements? How do you turn that requirements blueprint into design and executable code? Because Think about it. If the requirements models didn't directly result in executable code in some way or another, then they would be rather pointless. And so I often rant about why code can never actually be self-documenting, but model-based requirements and model-based design is turning that completely on its head and shows how documentation can largely be self-coding. Interesting. So, so here I'm thinking about where model-based techniques have traditionally been used a lot, and that's in highly complex, high reliability environments where you need a strong approach that can really manage requirements and design complexity well. I mean, one of the things that, that, that uh, I talk about when I talk about beer pairing ideas is, is this notion or this principle of matching strength to strength, right? I mean, if you're going to do beer pairing with food, if you, if you made a baklava with those beautiful little layers uh, uh, um, uh, of, of flour and dough, you know, interspersed with, uh, with some kind of f- fruit filling, you would generally wouldn't hammer that with some big, heavy, you know, quad or something like that. It would overwhelm the, the two and they wouldn't really marry together. So you typically want to, want to match strength to strength, something strong to something strong. And so I, when I think of, something where we can match the strength of this design method and its ability to handle complex environments. I think of barley wines. You know, I think of an imperial stout. They're robust beers like, you know, the robust approach to model-based design, a a robust way to handle the front end of a design environment. They both age well, right? Meaning that the maintenance of a model-based design environment lasts a long time. So they, they seem like they connect. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and again, I'm going to go out in a slightly different direction. I mean, I definitely agree with you, but I'm going to double down with my earlier pairing of design in general with IPAs and pair model-based design with the double IPAs. 
it's the build to last analogy, but even more so. So it seems like this uh, also goes along with your whole idea of strength. Uh, we're in agreement, but kind of from two different directions. Yeah, it's funny that a malt head guy like you would keep bringing, <laughs> up, bringing up IPAs as opposed to something else. But, uh, you know, we'll run with it. I'll take it for now. But, you know, I well, I mean, it, variety is a spice of life. I can't only do malty beers. Absolutely. It takes I remember, the. I, I remember going to a uh, hop and brew conference out in Yakima. And uh, we spent three days drinking IPAs, and I would have killed for a stout at the end of that. So it's, I think it's the opposite, but it's mm -hmm. the same idea, right? You just get overwhelmed with the same things. So I think we're through the requirements design activities. Normally at this point, we, we'd, we'd step into construction. Um, but but let's, I'm going to insert one more thing in the middle here. And, and since we're building something for the business um, in this, the business is going to always ask, hey, how much is this going to cost? When am I going to get the stuff that I asked you for, right? And so that's an area that unfortunately can end up being really contentious with software uh, engineers in general, and that's this idea of estimation. Uh, teams are asked to provide estimates to the business. They often hate it. Sometimes it's because they're already told when this, something needs to be done. You know, like, you know, you already said, here's the date, right? What do you need me to give me an estimate for? But it's, sometimes they don't even have a good idea how to approach estimating. And so... We have learning content that can help with both of those concerns, right? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. When I first entered the software industry professionally in the late 1970s, the not-so-joking approach was that you would take your best guess, then double it, and then move to the next higher unit. And so if your best guess was you could get it done in three weeks, that would turn into an estimate of six months. <laughs> wow, things have changed. But maybe not so much. <laughs> not so much. Oh. But we have a lot of experience to share in, in this area, right? Tell us, tell us a little bit about some of the estimation things we, could, we can really help with teams on. Sure, yeah. There's a lot to know about uh, being good at estimation. There's a science of estimation, which is essentially probability and statistics. But you certainly don't need a, a, a PhD in probability and statistics to be good at estimating. Just some fairly basic stuff. But then there's the art of estimation that goes along with that. Uh, dealing with uncertainty and risk, uh, knowing the difference between an estimate and a target and a commitment and the whole idea of control. I mean, an estimate is not a commitment and a commitment is not an estimate. They're related, but they're very different topics. Uh, there are just some fundamental building blocks of estimation. My youngest sister, uh, she's a civil engineer. She builds roads and bridges. And when she's estimating a build a road or build a bridge project, the, the way that she is estimating at a level is the same as we can and should be estimating. They're just some fundamental building blocks that you got to know. Uh, where does the estimation error come from? Why can't we say with certainty early on? And when you bring those general techniques specifically into software, there are some interesting twists and turns that are involved. And then there are the people issues like presenting an estimate and defending an estimate and negotiating around what's possible given the 10-pound pile of rocks and the 5-pound bag that, uh, you know, what are different options that we have here? Right. I mean, people issues are huge. I know you've bring that you bring that up all the time. 
Yeah. And for the more agile environments, the things like uh, how to effectively decompose the work, how do you do story sizing and mapping and definition of ready and focusing on the next couple of sprints as opposed to estimating the entire project or program. Interesting. So, you know, I, I'm thinking this is this is requires a little bit more of a story on on how to pair this with a particular beer. Um, I'm thinking of things like Scottish ales, and so you might ask, why am I thinking about Scottish ales here, right? So I, I think about the British government, and like all governments are always looking for new taxes, and and they thought taxing beer based on alcoholic strength made sense. So the higher the ABV, the more tax money they should make because the beer, you know, in their in their thinking, implicitly used more natural resources, and so something like your requirements cost more, so our tax estimate should reflect that. So you know, the brewers, being the beverage dev staff, if you will, um, they thought that was really unfair to be pushed to deliver on those added tax requirements, and so they just countered the estimated tax request by adjusting their delivery scope, which was the ABV, to. To reduce the tax hit. So what I mean there is they made these different strength beers to ease the estimated tax burden, but still satisfy the stakeholder value, the stakeholder customers, the drinkers. So you had these beers that ended up being called Scottish 60 shilling, Scottish 70 shilling, Scottish 80 shilling, based upon the tax applied to the increasing ABV. So in my long-winded explanation, a tax estimate ends up being a negotiated beer for the given tax burden. So how's that for wandering down and making a long point about just a simple <laughs> beer? Pretty weird, huh? Yeah, I mean, to me, this is a really difficult one. I'm not sure I could pair a good estimation with any one beer style in particular. Uh, instead, maybe we should pair a good estimation with a good understanding of the beer making process itself. The specifics of the recipes vary significantly from brewing one style to brewing another style. But the basic beer brewing process, as you know, is largely the same with a few uh, interesting and useful variations on that theme, as well as there being some really critical brewing practices like attention to cleanliness to avoid contaminating the batch and spoiling it. So the basic estimation process is largely the same, but there are some useful variations on that theme. And there are critical estimation practices like recording and later using historical performance data. You know, that's, that's a really good point. That's a good general way of thinking about it as opposed to a particular beer. You know, I actually had another – there's another um, analogy I had. And it's probably equally as bizarre, but um, I could use the notion of English bitters uh, in, in the same context as I use the, the Scottish ales and to some respects. You know, I mean, when somebody asks for a refined estimate – Early on in the project, you know, we teach this idea of the cone of uncertainty, right? Where your accuracy versus precision, you, you, you don't want to ever give a single number out in the beginning of a project because it just, mm -hmm. you, you will, you will just, you will just bias that your, your shareholders' thoughts of when they're going to get something. So you, you say to them, hey, you know what? I can't, there's a lot of unknowns here. I can't possibly do that, but here's a range. I can't give you the best number. So here's the range. And, our learning content, when we talk about estimation to different clients, you know, we're always we're always talking about uh, advising people to do that, give a range, um, something more standard or ordinary for that time of the project that makes sense. And then you work for the project for a little bit, you get more into it, you get a better feel for what's there, you get more sophisticated with how things are going. You can offer a better estimate, of, you know, that's more refined than the original. So as the project gets closer to the end, um, 
you, you can really give that extra special estimate, right? That has the high confidence in being really strong. And so I've kind right. of kind of tipped my hand here about this. If you know anything about English bitters, right? That you have this notion of standard ordinary bitter, the special bitter, and then the ESB or the extra special bitter. So see what I did there? It's kind of a long walk, but another long walk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a walk worth taking. I've made myself thirsty is what, I, is what I've done. It's pretty funny. So maybe this is a good stopping point. I think we've gotten through a lot of stuff today, Steve. I think um, we're, we're sort of running out of time a little bit, and we're about halfway through our activities. So I think I need I need to ask you to come back and do another session to cover more software, uh, some of the software development activities and, and, and more beer. Would you be up for that? Yeah, of course. I mean, if it involves software professionalism or it involves good beer, you can count me in. <laughs> and if it if it combines both at the same time, how could I say no? Absolutely. Yeah, to me, it's just a pity that we can't all be in the same place at the same time to sample the real beer styles as we're going through all this. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I, I think this is great. I think we could both do hours on this subject, and and so a commitment, a commitment. I'm going to make uh-huh, you right. for a future session is great. And you know, and we could even consider as we get a little bit better with our our phase two. Uh, uh, things here in Washington State, we could consider sitting outside and do a recording session with uh, with beers in hand and 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 kind of have that conversation. Um, and maybe things would flow easier. You know, they probably would. <laughs> right. So you know, of course, we'd have Ubers, but you know, that's the idea. So I think um, I wanted to add one last thing here to to s- sort of summarize in in, in our best shameless self promotion vein. I need to say that Constructs offers consulting, men uh, mentoring learning content related to all these topics today we've covered. And so you can check out our website at constructs.com for more information about those things. And with that, I think we're going to be out of here. Thank you so much, Steve, for providing your insight here. And I hope our listeners see our ability to help in a new light and also see the fact that you and I both know what we're talking about with regards to beer. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. (laughs) All right. So be sure to tune in next time for another episode of Inspect and Adapt, the Constructs podcast. Until then, this has been Mark Griffin as as your host. Liz Ostaszewski has been our audio engineer, and Devin Musgrave is our producer. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to give us a positive rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Audible, or wherever you normally find us. If you have comments or you'd like to talk to Steve and I about beer or software engineering concepts in general, or you have ideas for a future podcast, reach out via email using comments at constructs.com. Again, that's comments at constructs.com. We would love to hear from you. Keep staying safe out there, everybody, and have a great next sprint. <laughs>